Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Idle Hands podcast, where we hope to discuss and learn more about effective creative process. I'm joined today by the kindest man with a camera, Paul Bentz. Good evening, good evening, good evening, or good morning, depending where you are, I suppose. Oh yeah, I guess it could be either, right, for everyone else? Absolutely. It could be anywhere. I wonder what time people are listening to us at. I never really thought about that. For us, it's, it's currently 10 to 9 at night on a Thursday. Let yeah. us know where you are. Yeah, let us know. Give us, a, give us a shout out. Tell me what you're doing right now. Having a cup of tea, eating some food, having your breakfast, going for a run. People could be listening to us while they're going for a run. They could be. They could be. <laughs> what have you been up to this week, Paul? What have I been up to this week? So I have been working on a couple of things. I've been trying to get all the shots together that I shot for Ministry of Sound and in nightclubs and for Vice magazine. And I thought I thought I was really organised and I had everything. And then I came to look for the raw files for the Ministry of Sound stuff and I was like, damn it. I really don't I can't find them. Like I looked I pulled out every hard drive, it was like it was a mess, yeah. And then I, I I phoned our good friend Roman and he said, Roman, do me a favour, mate. Have a look if you've got any of my um Ministry of Sound raw files and then he sent me a little link and he showed me, he said, Yes, I've got eighty gigs worth. So I'm quite pleased that they're on a hard drive <laughs> in East I was panicking, I was like, I can't find them, no. And I'm really like I, I found stuff like you know, really random stuff that I, I I shouldn't have kept, and I did. And the stuff that I wanted to find, I couldn't. It's always the way, right? It's some kind of torture, I think. Digital problems, twenty first century. Eighty gigs worth. That, that's yeah. a lot. That's a lot. I know. I know that last episode, if if anybody tuned into that, he was saying that you you were going for a number of months, right? Yeah, for about three. And I look. My daughter was born on the fifteenth of September, two thousand and twelve. And I was looking today and I, she basically from the, from the first, after the first month I was there. So October, November, December and some of January, basically. And I'd finished sort of in the middle of January. So it was like three and a half months and it was, it was me. It was like, you know, I, I was old, so I hadn't been clubbing for ages and it was really like kind of a sensory experience, you know, it's just taking you out of your normal sitting in a bar and a quiet pint to go into a sweaty, noisy club where, People are well. They're high on life, I suppose, and other things. But it was, it was really, <laughs> it was. I, I look at the photos now, and and like stuff that you, like I, I love this about photography: is stuff that you you thought wasn't good at the time, or you know, wasn't important. Now, when I look at it, I think, wow, man, you were good. <laughs> but, I no. work. It was, it was pretty strong. What, what are you planning to do with with your eighty gigs of Ministry of Sound photos? Well, it's. Like, I, I, I kind of, it's been nice to have a break from doing my book, actually. It's like, so I'd been doing this book for about two years and I, I needed a little pause because my head was a bit blinded by it. So I thought, well, maybe I can make a little zine first of that Ministry of Sound stuff and the club scene in the early thousands and 2000, it's basically from 2005 to about 2012, 13, I think. So there's like, you know, a mix of stuff there. I didn't, I, I shot a bit for Vice magazine. And that was like, they just send you to weird places. Like they send you to some student's house who'd be having a party, you know, and you just turn up with your camera and it was like <laughs> really awkward. <laughs> it sounds like great fun though. It, it was, it was really interesting. Like it was really, I kind of think of that time as a really like eye-opening, because I, you know, I came from South Wales. So, you know, yes, I'd been clubbing and I had been clubbing since I'd been in London. I'm not like completely old, but it was just a real sort of, experience 
Yeah, you know, I was I was going out at midnight and coming in about five in the morning, and I was like, had a baby, and my wife was knackered because she'd been <laughs> up all the night. So I had to come back and look after the baby, and I was like, just keeping my eyes open. And I was like, oh my god, I'm so tired. It was tough but enjoyable. I, I'm glad I stuck it out for so long now because they, they like the originally the agency didn't kind of, I think, wasn't really sure about the idea and such, and so. It could have, you know, you could have done it a couple of times and, and you might have got a couple of, but it's, it's like this idea of repeating it, going over and over until you feel that you've, well, for me, it feels like I, I've i got a body of work that I think even at that time I knew I would use later on. You know, it, it, it's like that club culture, that club scene stuff, it becomes kind of like a timeless, it was all, like we said before, black and white, Trent Parky, grainy. And it creates that. I always think that grainy, black and white naturally create that kind of, what's the word? Documentary. Documentary, real, raw. Like, like it's, it's there's, there's definitely some connection to history there, which I, I don't know about. It does always feel a bit more timeless, doesn't it? There's, there's something about colour that sets a time and a place more than black and white does. Whenever mm-hmm. I look at, I, maybe this is just me, but whenever I look at black and white uh, photography, I always, I don't know, I, I struggle to place it in, in time. You know, you might see fashions change, but it doesn't seem to be as obvious as if it's with, you know, if you see a photo from the 60s and it's all bright and colourful, you, you kind of, it immediately makes you think of the 60s. Whereas a black and white, you just feels a bit more timeless. Yeah, I, I hear you completely. I think this, I think black and white manages maybe to pause time in a much more, well, not pause is the wrong word, but I just think it allows you to, for me, it allows me to place myself in the picture maybe more easily sometimes because it's less confusing and less distracts. Colour can be sometimes distracting if it's not used correctly. And I think taking away all those distractions and you're just concentrating on the subject and the light. And, and I think, you know, sometimes when I've been out shooting street photography, even if I'm shooting in colour, I'll put the viewfinder on black and white so you can see where the light falls in the scene. I always find that you can find the light much more easier in a black and white photo. It's much more obvious. Sometimes you can in colour as well. I'm not saying you can't. It's difficult. But it's just that sometimes you're able to uh, visualise that the contrast and, and, and the dark and the light scenes much more um, dramatically, maybe in a black and white photo. I thought it was just me that did that. To be honest with you, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that it's not just me. I've been doing that for a long time. I mean, the thing is, is I think I spent so long shooting black and white with sort of HP five and that kind of thing. I've I've almost learned to see in black and white. I, I I don't really think about the colours when I'm shooting so much as where the light falls. Exactly like you said. I can't wait to see that that magazine when you when you finally get around to that. Fingers crossed. That's way more exciting than what I've been doing. This week I've spent a lot of time just thinking about adverts and the best way to try and attract wedding clients for my for my photography business. So what you've been doing is infinitely more interesting than what mm. I've been doing. So how what did you what was your conclusion? I've been talking about this. So Roman and Dan, Dan is our assistant, and Dan's been doing a bit of wedding photography. And I was saying to him, I, I think, and you can disagree with me, if you, maybe I shouldn't give this idea away online because everybody's going to do it if I say it. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you can maybe you can cut it out. You choose, Dan. You choose. But I was thinking, like, what 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 is the one thing that you crave, right? So you you need clients, yes, um, and you need clients who are engaged to get married. How how do you attract them? And, and for me, I I would I would do this at a heartbeat. I would run a competition, yes, create a newsletter first. So you've got a newsletter. So 
It's basically saying, this is about you. These are the weddings I've done in the past. Talk a bit about your business, you know, just do a wedding newsletter. But then I would run a competition that basically gave a three days wedding photography. And, and you might say, wow, that's a bit crazy. But I think what you're doing is you're generating a mailing list, right? With a list of clients who are going to be getting married because they've entered the competition. You know that for sure. You can then hit them with your newsletter with a discount, even if they didn't win. Say, you know, if you book with me now, you can get 10% or 15% off the price of a full wedding. And, and then you're, you've got this list. You've got this list of people. And then and you just try and keep generating through that list. I, I've got a few friends like Dan Morris. And he, he, I think he does a bit of Instagram advertising now and again. Um, I don't really know much about Instagram advertising, but I think it's quite powerful from, from what I've heard. Um, mm. But, you know, that's just my five pence. And, and I think, like, like I was lucky when, when me and Roman were doing weddings because we had lots of friends who were in that group of, it was their age where they were getting married. And, right. you know, and so one led to another, led to another, and it was kind of all word of mouth. We never really had to advertise for it, like I suppose. It makes a huge difference, doesn't it? I did actually do pretty much exactly what your idea was. I did that at the beginning of 2020, which was probably the worst time in the world to do it because now it means I've still got two couples that I need to shoot weddings for that <laughs> they've been postponing for, for the last year. But yeah, I did exactly what, what you're suggesting, and I don't think that's um, very uncommon in, in the wedding industry. The other way you can do that, of course, is if you're not wanting to give away an entire day's wedding the other thing you can give away is like an engagement shoe or something like that yeah if that's something you're into did you generate did you generate what what did it do how, how did it turn out i'm interested to hear what was the conclusion did you did you generate any couples uh well back in 2020 when i did it yeah so at, at the time i had zero weddings under my belt and i just needed to get something in my portfolio which is why i did it i kind of kept it quite quite limited in its audience i didn't I didn't want to be dealing with any bridezillas that I didn't have some kind of connection to. So it was a prerequisite for me that they somehow they somehow knew me, either me or they were like a friend of a friend of a friend or something. Mm -hmm. I, I only opened it up to a kind of closed, quite a large circle, but a closed circle nonetheless. And I, I think that really helped me out immediately after that. Everything started going to ratchet and we all got locked in our houses. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think it really helped out that actually I had this connection while I didn't actually know the couples. I did know couples of the yeah, exactly. I, I knew people that knew people, and it, it, it made a big difference where you can kind of talk to them almost as friends rather than speaking to them as clients. And yeah, I found that sometimes difficult, you know, mixing that relationship between uh, between friends and, and a client because when you are really friendly with a couple, so it, it, it's it's a double edged sword in some ways because you're you want to do a really amazing job for the couple, but you want to earn. Yeah a fair price and sometimes because they're a friend you'll end up staying longer you know than you would normally do i think and it's a different kind of pressure and and i think it's great when you're starting out and it's a great way to generate work is catching people in that that time of their lives when they're going to get married but it's, yeah. it's I, I find weddings are really like i'm i'm they're a really time consuming and hard job and i have a lot of respect for people who do weddings i think it's a really tough tough job it's not uh particularly for people to do it well people like dan morris that have been doing it for for a little while now and and just still seem to have the energy still you know i find those people quite impressive i don't know how long i'll last in the in the wedding game i i'm, I'm hoping you know i'm still young i'm still energetic i hope i'll last a little while but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure it's not the kind of thing you can you can't really be doing it at 60 years old and trying to bend down with your dodgy hip i had to give up my weddings because my wife didn't want me not to be around at the weekends basically with children that, that that's 
that's my base. I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed doing them because it's just, you're amongst people who are in a happy place, you know, they're in a good mental place. Everybody's enjoying the day and it's fun and you can, like, I think the beauty of it is like to try and just introduce yourself and get as friendly with as many guests as possible. So then you just become part of the furniture and you're just, you're just kind of invisible. That was always my way. I was really like overtly friendly, you know, helping yeah. people carry them. You know, just because I think it is a special day, obviously for the couple and you don't want to, we had one or two bridezillas, but on the whole, I think we, we kind of dodged that part of it, I think we were pretty lucky. But it's it's a That's tough good. it's it's a tough job. It is a tough job. It's a really you really need commitment and um, enthusiasm and energy to be going from like sometimes driving like at six in the morning and shooting all day and then driving home at midnight and not getting in till three. Like we God, we did some long days doing weddings. Wow, just brings me <laughs> in a bit of a cold sweat. I'm gonna have to get you out shooting with me and when I can get some uh, some London dates booked. I'll come and be your assistant. I'll be your assistant. Oh, sure. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. I think it might be the other way around. Too much experience. (laughs) That brings us quite nicely onto today's topic, actually. And today we're talking about the balance between um, commissioned work and personal work and how those two things might or might not link. This was a a topic suggested by Paul. And actually, I think it's, it's, it's quite a good topic, particularly given our opening here. It might be worth to start with trying to define the difference between commissioned and personal work because I know the more I thought about it, the the less clear those lines became. I'm going to give you straight off the bat. So this is my definition of commissioned work. You basically get asked to produce a set of images for a fee and sometimes you get a brief, sometimes you don't. Or you might get a sentence saying, I want photos. And personal work is a self-initiated or a self-funded project. What do you think? Do you agree with me? Yeah, yeah, I could go with that. I could go with that. There's a couple of little things I just want to explore, really. Your, your definition of commissioned work, where it's basically somebody saying, I want you to take photos of ABC. Or in fact, if we open it up wider, it's not necessarily just photography. This could be any kind of commissioned works. Maybe it's somebody that wants a portrait painting or, or they want a sculpture or, or whatever it is that they want. But they're, they're kind of, they're dictating to you roughly what they want. They're not just buying a piece of work that you've already made. Which brings me on to my conundrum here that I, I, I thought about for a while and I, I don't know if I really got anywhere with it. Does a personal piece of work, if you've done it off your own back, maybe you've paid for it out of your own pocket, does that become commissioned if suddenly you start selling it? Well, I don't think it becomes commissioned, but, but it does become a commercial transaction, right? Imagine, you know, you've done a project, a self-funded project for the last two years and two years are up and you want to start selling some prints. So the moment you sell your first print, that becomes a commercial transaction. Whether it's not commissioned because you've you've decided the project is self initiated, it's all off your own back. So I think commissioned specifically is when somebody is commissioning you, paying you a free to shoot whatever they want. And like you say, sometimes you get a brief. Usually you get a brief if it's a decent client. We've had some funny briefs in our time, I have to say. From some big clients. I mean, wow. When you say a funny brief, just because sometimes it's it's very vague, so you'll get you'll 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 get people who um, they have an idea, but it's not clear and there's no clarity. And I think part of your job in those situations is to try and delve a little deeper with the client and get into specifics about the project. Um, I mean, I've had lots of clients say they want it Apple esque. I mean, come on, what does that mean, Apple esque? <laughs> 
if I pretty bright colors with a silhouette <laughs> and a, and a white earpod, right? That's what that means. I, I I'm not sure, but like I think you're right. So you know, personal work can can become a commercial transaction, and so these lines do get a bit blurred. And I think the problem is is that over time, you know, your your commercial work and your personal work, you shouldn't be able to see the join, right? They should be they should be speaking the same language. And so that, that's the skill, and it's a really difficult skill to to get your your personal and your commercial work to have. And, and like me and Roman, I mean, I think we spent hours and hours, and I still don't think we've got it right. Um, and I think it takes time. I think it's a it's a real thing that's hard to achieve. I don't know if there's easy answers here, but other than the clarity of idea, the the focus of what you're shooting. And I, me and Roman had lots of arguments about this this very thing, you know about what we should show and what we shouldn't show. And I mean, arguments, I say arguments, but conversations maybe. And I think it's a difficult line. You know, you don't, you don't ever get to, um, you don't ever get, I'm trying to think of the word. You want to show the stuff that you want to do more of. You want to show the stuff that's already in your own voice to go back to one of our previous conversations. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? You, you kind of almost... The conversation we were just having about can your personal work become commissioned work? You almost want to be asking that the way around. Can yes. your commissioned work become your personal work? Yeah, and I think, you know, this idea, This and you're right, like I've done lots of work and I think sometimes that's come from the street work I was shooting at the time and people had seen it and they said, Paul, can we come and do this like that? So some stuff I did for the BBC with a, a friend called Dingesh, which hopefully is going to come on one of these shows. He's a producer, director on, on lots of shows for the BBC. He loved my street work and he said, I just want you to come on set and do that, basically. Just do that behind the scenes, do that for the shows. And I suppose, like, how do you transfer what you shoot on the street into... into and it's, it's, not, it's not easy, but it is, it is definitely possible. It's, it's just your style is... It becomes a lot of things, the lens you use and the way that you use that lens and... Even now, when I look back, and you know, there is definitely a street element to the way I like to shoot. I, I like to shoot as, with as little gear as possible, maybe one lens. Even when I'm shooting commercial stuff, I'll try and keep it to one lens if possible, maybe two. But I think it just it, it makes you focus on the idea rather than the kit, and you get distracted by gear and all of the things that go with that. I think you want to kind of throw all these gears, like get the gear sorted, what you want at the beginning, and then just focus on trying to create the idea of the commission. Or if it's your personal work, you know, you want to follow, again, your voice and, and what, what your work is trying to say. It's, it's very difficult. I, I don't think there's any easy answers, um, Dan. It's, it's almost like what you're saying here is you're trying to weed out the audience. You're trying to only have people pay you to do your work that are already a fan of your work so you're not necessarily trying to sell them the idea of your own voice that you've already captured in one of our previous conversations you're only showing your voice and the only people that are interested in your voice are the people that are coming to you for the jobs right for sure i mean i'll give you a really good example so um we've got a client called hedden we worked with them previously i hadn't spoken to them for maybe 18 months something like that maybe two years even I pitched an idea to them saying, hey, guys, I got an idea. Fancy sending me some helmets. I could do a little test. And they came back to me and said, Paul, we love the idea. Come and give us a call. I went in. I saw them, picked up a couple of helmets, brought them home, did some testing. And it's kind of blown up into into something completely different. But 
I think the key is that you, like you, you you've got to go and reach out and to people and and do the work that you want to do, and nobody's going to drive your car for you. You've got to drive it yourself. You've got to be the force that says, you know, I'm not afraid to pitch these ideas because. A, A, I'm confident that we can achieve what I, I think we can achieve. But more importantly, I think it, it's part of who, like, it, it's part of who I am as a photographer. That idea of turning up with my camera and producing is something that I'm pretty confident I can do on most jobs, I would say. As long as I'm thoroughly researched, I know the idea. I know what we're doing beforehand. We've talked it out. We've, we've got the models. We've got everything ready to go. Turning up with your camera and then shooting, I think, you know, that's the easy bit. I, I really think it's, it's, it's nailing down everything beforehand and being organized and, and prepared. And then when you turn up on the job, I, I think I know how I like to shoot. And so if I know how I like to shoot, I'm going to shoot that way. And I think sometimes in the past or when we've had commercial jobs and you're trying to fit who you are as a photographer into what the client wants. And sometimes that doesn't work and sometimes it fails, you know, and, and, and that's maybe because you're, your ideas weren't aligned at the beginning or you weren't clear enough um, and sometimes things get lost. I mean, on bigger jobs, we always had, we were always shooting tethered so the client was sat on a screen looking at what was coming out of the camera. How, how daunting is that? I've never done that. How how horrible yeah, is that to have I, someone I, sit, stood there and looking? I think, the, I think the, first, the first couple of times you do it is a bit, oh my God, you know, because I hated people standing over my shoulder and looking at the camera. So, it was like, oh my God, they sat there and they can see. But I actually think it's a real transparent process and it really is helpful because like you you know what you're trying to achieve beforehand. So they're, they're already on board with your ideas. And now it's just about you um, getting it done, basically. And so, yes, it is, a little, it is a bit overwhelming at first time you do it because you think, oh my God, oh my God, I just shot a really crap photo. Oh my God, they can see that and my, my horizons weren't straight or whatever it is and I, I but you kind of get past that because actually i think it's not about the horizons or even it's about what you're trying to again this is feeling right, that you're trying to get across right. like even in commercial com, sorry commission work even in commission work you're it's the same idea you're trying to connect with the subject in a way that allows your your message to get out I, and i think that's a personal work or commission work um the, the the idea is the same i think it's the same uh, and sometimes you you can get lost in that like people will try and drag you to places that you're not comfortable with and i i always i like i say i always felt that i was much more comfortable in a non-studio open lifestyle shoot environment definitely that that's where but i also found that, that the longer i did the studio stuff having that control is really it, you, once you once once the lighting is done and you're happy you can just shoot you know and it's just you're just shooting and you're just trying to get that one or three or five images that get what the client wants and they're there so actually it, it's one of the big bonuses of it is that when you come to edit you haven't got to edit hundreds of photos now you've only got to edit like 50 or 60 that the client's chosen um, and you might be there shooting all day, so you might have a couple of thousand images and actually having the client choosing it, going, yep, 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 no, no, no. You get to the end of the day, I've got 60, I can turn those around in a couple of hours in the morning, job done, happy days. You're almost setting the stage beforehand, so you're turning up to commissioned work, having 
already planned out everything. You already know what your outcome is going to be. You're just sort of fulfilling that last step. Mentally, for sure. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah, for sure. And I think the best work comes, I do believe the best work comes that way where you are clear with what you're shooting before you turn up. It's in your mind. Those images, you can see them, how you want them to look and feel. And then it's just trying to put all those bits together on a day and creating something that you're pleased with, I think. And, and I mean, we came away from jobs, you know, sometimes it's quite euphoric when you, 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 you feel that you've nailed it and you're going, yes, yes, you're going to be happy. Or sometimes you're like, oh my God, I, that, that creative director was a bit tricky. And, you know, it's, it's, it's never, it's never straightforward. It's never, it's, it's never, there's always a, a complicated process beforehand, but I always think it's better to get all the details nailed out before you shoot. And then when you come to shoot, you, you're a lot more freer, you know, you're a lot less pressure, the pressure's off because you know what you're going to do. And so if you know what you're going to do, it's, it's then just about executing it. And I think technically the only thing you really need to get right is your background or your location or the and the lighting. And then it's all about how you are dealing with the subjects, the models, the, the whatever, you know, the people that you're shooting. And I think that that's a you know we could go talk about that for hours how you relate to people and how you put people at ease and how you make people relax in those kind of sterile studios and for me it was always it was everybody would be laid back i think the whole team is um you know put a bit of music on we would make it fun you know I think that would be a really interesting topic to explore um at some point we're hoping to get david cummings mm-hmm. uh, on the podcast and and chat to him and as a predominantly a portrait photographer i think that'd be a really interesting topic actually to to, to see what his thoughts on that are because totally all of his work has that kind of very natural look none of those people look awkward at least none of the stuff i've seen yeah and if you if you meet dave you'd you'd get why because again he's a very he's a very personable man you know he's very chilled relaxed he's easygoing yeah it's a good he has a good way of speaking with people and relating to people and i think that's i think that is the biggest skill of a photographer of putting people at ease and making them relax you know i think it's a it's a it's a skill in itself it's a and it takes time i think and and being able to read somebody and and read a room and judge characters and how those complex relationships are unfolding around you while you're shooting and and trying to you know still be focused it's it's yeah, it, it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting subject. As well as giving you the energy and the the bandwidth to to observe those things, do you also find that having planned out everything beforehand before you turn up for your commission, do you, do you find that that gives you a bit more freedom and a bit more space to explore creatively because you can just turn up, execute the thing that you've already agreed, and your 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 client ha- is happy, and then you can just sort of play for a while. Do you find that that's a thing, or am I totally? No, I, I, I absolutely no, absolutely. I think um, Roman always, always, always. He was like really tight on getting, and he, he's French, and you will see when you talk to him. But he talks for hours, and he, but he was he was really he thought the detail, bef- get, dotting all the eyes before shooting allows you allows you that freedom on set to go off the path that you were originally planned for. And sometimes those mistakes things happen, you know, when you're shooting that you couldn't have foreseen or planned and and because you've got this freedom this this confident freedom because you've you've 
planned everything beforehand. The, the shooting is is much easier. Like I I I never thought I would say it because I'm not. I, like I was never that person to be honest with you. You know, Roman drummed that into me over years. Like the idea of planning and organizing and structure. Uh, I mean, I think it comes from him for sure, definitely. It's really important that you give yourself that space to explore creatively. I can only really apply this with some shoots for some brands. Um, and obviously I've done a few weddings now as well. And you, you have a little short list in your head. These are the outcomes that I want, that I know I need to get. But you, you, you try and give yourself as much latitude as you can to actually go and do something a little bit more exciting, a little bit more surprising. And it's often that stuff that your clients are most excited about anyway. I don't know, is it, have, you, have you ever found that when you've done your sort of larger commercial shoots? Have you ever found that the stuff that you've turned in that everybody was expecting turned out to be the sort of the less exciting stuff to them? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think like we, because we were so organized and so planned before we shot, I think when we turned up for a job, uh, because there was two of us as well, this is really helpful, right? So on, on jobs for Hedden that we've done in the past, Roman would be shooting in the studio where I would take, so we'd have like maybe eight or nine models. So he'd be shooting one in the studio and I'd be shooting one outside doing some lifestyle stuff with him. With him. And so we could basically do produce two strong, really strong bodies of work in one day. And, and that was a really it's a real advantage. So you can say to the client, actually, we can do both. Like they'd want us to do the studio stuff. Or say, actually, we can do not only the studio stuff, but we can give you a set of lifestyle images at the same time. And, and sometimes we wouldn't tell them that we were going to do it. And then we'd give it to them afterwards and it would be a bonus. And then you're like, the client's like, wow, guys. I mean, we didn't even expect that. That's like amazing. And, and so then you're like, I, Roman, you like, you always want to go, I, I think in commercial, sorry, in commissioned work, you always want to go a step beyond what the client wants. Like, so maybe that may be doing some behind the scenes as well, or, um, just pushing that boundary just a little bit beyond what they ask for. Cause I think it, it reinforces to them not only your ability and your skills, but also that you're going beyond the call of duty to produce extra for them because, you know, uh, it, and, it, and just, and I think we've done that with lots of different clients in, in, you know, lots of different ways because there was always two of us. So we always were able to give a little bit extra, which I think when you want to retain clients and, you know, continue relationships. And I think that's one of the, why we've had lots of long-term relationships with different clients is because we always kind of not push the bar a little bit further than we needed to. And maybe the value. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you, you, it's rewarded. It's, it's paid back for sure. I think that's. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I was think I was speaking to my friend Alfred, who's going to come on on the podcast as well today. We were talking about the idea of sometimes, you know, this idea of doing free work is kind of a, a one of these devilly sins that we're not allowed to talk about. But I think if we're honest, everybody's done a bit of free work, and if you're doing free work for the right reasons early in your career but what i mean by that is that there's going to be some eventual payback in whether they give you work or they know somebody can give you work i don't think it's such a bad thing i just think you have to be really careful and and not 
get caught in the trap of, you know, work for, for what do they call it? Work for uh, having my name underneath the image. I just find there's, there's, if, if there's some benefit to you in the long term, and sometimes you play the long game, then yeah, I, I, I'm all for it. I think you just have to be really careful about choosing those early, early doors, who those people are and who those Absolutely. connections are. I, I wonder if the free work that you're talking about, if you're doing that to build your portfolio, you should probably be seeing that as personal work, not free work, right? You shouldn't be looking at that as, that, that's not a commission. Nobody's asking you to do that. You're doing that just to build your own portfolio in exactly the same word as you might with your normal artistic portfolio. This is just work that you're going to happen to put in the portfolio that you'll show potential clients and, and hope they ask you to do something similar because that's in work. That's the work you enjoy doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's it. You've got to do, you've got to shoot the work you enjoy doing because that, I think, you know, breeds longevity, doesn't it? If you, if you, keep, if you, if you don't, if you, you know, maybe you shoot products or jeans or I don't know, socks or on a white background. I mean, eventually that's going to blow your brains out. There's only so long you can do that stuff for, I think. T testing, testing, testing as much as you can for, you know, commission work, testing for jobs that you want to do. Like, would you like shooting products? Do you like shooting people? Do you like, if you, if you like shooting products, then shoot it at home. Absolutely. If you like shooting people, get some people, you know, do that and, and create the work. And, and the more work you create, the better portfolio you create and the more chance I think you have of getting clients. Um, and it's really competitive, you know, it's not easy. I, I speak to a lot of photographer mates who are struggling in in, in lots of different ways. Uh, I think, you know, mental health is a lonely pursuit. I think there's not much support, I don't think, out there yeah, for photographers. Be. I mean, but that's a subject as well, Dan, we can talk about later on, isn't it? Like, you know, that the solitary idea of the photographer and the mental health and how everybody's kind of got through this year. Because it's been a tough year for lots of, of creative people uh, and lots of photographers. I think so. You know? I know I've been talking to some creative people that have also found this really, really tough. I'm also just wondering whether or not there's an analogous version of what you're talking about, the kind of product photography on a in a white box. I wonder if everybody else has that as well, all the other creatives. Like, do actors have that? Is that just adverts? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think so. I think they must... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I was just trying to think, well, about musicians, maybe. Is that like... What would be a musician's... Maybe that'd just be scoring something like a, an advert or some shit TV program. Yeah. I, I can fully imagine that every every creative industry probably has something like that where it's just the work that is good. It will pay the bills and it's, it's, it's obviously that's what you need to do. You need to pay bills, right, as a creative. But yeah. I, I wonder if there is always work that will eventually just, just kill your soul if you just if you can't find a way of managing it. I think it's so. probably the same, like even for an architect, you know, you could be designing a McDonald's or something and it's the same, same look in place over and over and over again. McDonald's come in, um, you know, they come like pre-built. They like come on a lorry in two halves and then they stick them together. The one, well, the little ones anyway, out on like roundabouts and stuff. So they don't even somebody build Somebody has to design those. Yeah, well. Maybe that makes them quite interesting though. Maybe that makes them like an engineering feat. The fact that they have to sort of assemble together like a giant Meccano set. Maybe that makes them, maybe they're not the, uh, the white background socks type. Maybe, maybe that's maybe a good gig if you're yeah. an engineer or an architect. Or something. Well, I bet there's lots of them and they, you know, like I got them. How many McDonald's in the UK? Thousands, right? I, I don't know. I'm not even going to Google it. <laughs> it's it's going to be a lot. Too many. <laughs> 
I used to work at McDonald's, Paul, did you? Me know? too. Me too. Me too. Look at did that. That's, yeah, when I was like 16, I worked. Yeah, yeah, I worked, yeah. I got sacked from McDonald's. Can you believe that? That's my claim to fame. Because <laughs> <laughs> I gave some free nuggets to my friends. <laughs> how much do you think those nuggets actually cost them oh, like as, like three pence or something like i gave a box of 20 nuggets and they paid for a six box and i was like shit and then the boss was sat in the car in the car park and they saw and i was like hey, did you give free food away no <laughs> oh it's ridiculous isn't it I, know. I, I remember a friend of mine that i i used to work with at, at mcslave I, I remember once <laughs> going to the till to to order some food from him and it was like one of my off shifts and he literally, and I don't know, he must have done this all the time. I don't know how he didn't get sacked. He he pressed the, uh, there was a button. So, you know, if you ask them to like upsize to get a large meal, there's a button that basically just adds 20p. Okay. And that's all it is. It's just a plus 20p button. And that's all he did is he pressed the upsize button and he filled like four giant paper bags with all of the food, handed them over and he was like, 20p, please. It was amazing. I, I, I don't know. Like, you got sacked for giving away six chicken nuggets. I know. I think people are a bit, I think they're a bit mean. I think we should maybe be, maybe make a protest against McDonald's sacking staff for giving chicken nuggets away. Come on, it's, it's not fair. They, they, ruined my, <laughs> they ruined me as a person. <laughs> it's got to be a perk of the job. They pay you so little. Yeah, absolutely. I remember going home to tell my mother and she just was laughing. And I was like, okay, thanks, mum. Where's the support? I'm broken. It's such a weird place. I'm sure it's much better today, but I remember, I mean, this must have been, I was fresh out of school. It was too many years ago to even think about, but I ended up having a massive falling out with the manager at the time because, honestly, right, I'm not making a word of this up. I refused to serve out-of-date food. That was my big crime. <laughs> I, I threw away a load of lettuce and various other things. And this lady had a small meltdown about the fact that I'd thrown away all this food that probably cost the store like sub 10 pounds. And yes. then she was like, you should go and get that out of the bin. Like, well, that's, that's our profits. And I, was like, I don't think so, love. <laughs> Cheerio. That was it. Yeah, May, yeah, yeah, maybe you, you've what started global warming. That's it. You're the beginning. You see all that lettuce you threw away. I tell you, I'd rather have started global warming like that than serve people out of date food. I've I've got a moral compass. You've got principles down, haven't you? It doesn't always point north, but, you know, I'm a man of some principles at least. and I I wasn't going to serve people out of date food. That just wasn't wasn't in my makeup. Just while we're talking about making money, doing things that kill you a little bit inside... Is it always important to generate an income from your creative endeavors? Well, I think if you want to survive, it is, I think, absolutely. I think it's not, I mean, it's not always, I don't think money is the end all and be all for sure, no. Um, And I think that if you do think that, then you're always going to set yourself up for some heartache. Because photography is really, like I think it's really competitive. It's very complicated. It's not... Like your people are paying you in the commission sense for your skills, right? And and yes, they want you to produce an image of a kind. But I always say this from mine, what they wanted and what you actually achieve is, is usually is sometimes quite different, right? It's quite like it's it's never exactly it's not it's never ever exactly what they want. It's it's a version of it. And it's always somewhere in the middle of what they want and what you were trying to achieve. Let me be a bit more specific with my question because I'm not really sure I nailed it the first time round. Go on. Right, let's just assume 
finances aside, maybe somebody's got another job, they've got a nine to five, maybe their creative pursuit is, is more of a hobby for them. Is it always important that people pursue whatever their art form is as a way of generating an income? No, no, I think absolutely not. I think, I don't think you, you like if, if you've got a full-time job and your photography is a hobby and you're an amateur, and you're doing it for the love of it, for the love of taking a picture, for the love of seeing what comes out of your little black box. For sure, no, absolutely no. And and I, I mean, I think money confuses everything anyway. It it it's like how, how do you value commercial commission work? And, and I mean, price and prices vary such such a massive. Like people want stuff for nothing, and you have to try and justify how. And why the cost of something costs something, and that's always been an issue, I think, in commissioned work. And and but for personal work, and, and for you know, for the amateur photographer out there, no, you do it for the love of it. You do it because you're passionate about it. This passion, you you want to take a picture, you know, you want to go out on the street, you want to go and shoot what you want to shoot, and you do it because you love it. And it's in I love photography, and I I I think it offers me a place to be calm and to just see the world. I think that's in a much more slowed down way and, and it allows me to understand the world. I think that's, that's what it does. And it, and all, all facets of that, wherever you go with your camera, whatever you do, you're always like a little bit like an investigator exploring, trying to find out, understand. And that, that, that in itself, I think is, is the beauty of it. The, the, the commission work, you know, um, is great if you can get it and if you want to become a professional. But, you know, commission work, getting paid to do a job and surviving from it, then you're a professional photographer. That's what you are, you know. And I don't think we can get caught up in all kinds of definitions. But if you... Um, it doesn't necessarily make you an artist, right? The fact that you're being paid for something or somebody else has seen that in you means that you're a shrewd businessman or a mm -hmm. businesswoman rather than being an artist. Absolutely, absolutely. And for a long time, you know, the the idea of personal work and commissioned work have, have run side by side for me. You know, we've we've been lucky and we've picked up certain jobs along the way, but sometimes my personal work has driven that um, and sometimes it's come from doing other work that people have seen to so other commissioned work. If somebody will see your commissioned work, they go, oh, can you do that for us? That happens quite a bit. I think the skill to be really good is to try and, like I said earlier, like the join between your commissioned and your personal work, to try and make that almost seamless that so you don't see it. And and, and that's that's what I'm aiming for. That's that's the, the, like the nirvana of, of my photography life when I cannot see the join between the two. And I think it takes a long time a long time. I wonder if it's made more difficult by the fact that you have commissioned work. I, I wonder if, if the fact that you know you you identify as a professional creative in that particular medium. I wonder if that makes it harder to to make your personal work speak better in your own voice. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, and I, I think if you explore that a bit, like so, I think you always when you're shooting your personal work, then that you're always. Like, I'm always thinking to myself, is this stuff any good? Like, is it is it really any good? Or, is it, you know, because you're so, like, I, I'm really confident in the commission sense, and I think I can probably turn up to most jobs and produce. But your personal worker, because it it's, it's something completely different. It's coming from 
within you and not from within some other person. It, it, it's it's a tricky, tricky, tricky subject. Oh, sorry, my daughter's knocking at my door again. Bless sorry, her little heart. What's she doing? <laughs> She's making a little sign for you. Yeah, which says pod, photographer podcasting. Do not disturb. <laughs> Love her. That's very cute. <sighs> Glad you have to get her on. She could be a guest. Oh, God, she'd love that. She would. (laughs) Give me one minute, one minute. Take as long as you need, man. This idea of commission work, making your personal work more difficult, I think there's some truth to that. Um, Because obviously you're, when you're doing commission work, people already have an idea of what they want. You get a brief of, you know, I want you to create... Uh, a set of images with some models with a green background and you know so you've got you've got a set plan so you kind of you're refining ideas rather than coming up directly although you do come up with ideas um you're usually refining ideas and your personal work because this is your voice and your values and what you're trying to say it's, it's just a bit more difficult the personal work but the personal work once you get that right, once you find out, you know, your style, your voice, what it is, I think, like I feel for me personally in the last couple of years, because every, not all the stars have aligned, but it feels like I, I know what my, where I'm comfortable, where I produce my best work. So that in turn means when I'm pitching ideas to certain clients, I know that what what I'm pitching, I can produce and do to a really high standard. And so that that's fine, that's straightforward. But when I'm shooting my personal projects, it's a lot more foggy. You know, it's like you're in, you know, you're on the Swiss plateau and in the Jura mountains and you're just, you're just trying to keep your head above that, that mist. I think it's, it's a, it's a lot more complicated. Do you feel like that's, that's kind of a bit of imposter syndrome there or is is that just because it's it's really difficult to separate your your art from your business ah that's a good question i i I don't think it is actually if i'm honest i think if you're like i've always shot through you know i've always shot for shooting not for for a brief so i've shot for myself for a lot throughout the whole of my career i always predominantly it's always been about investigation whether I've shot commissioned or personal work it's it's me going in with an idea and then trying to execute that like understanding who you are as a person it, it takes a long time that right and I don't think you ever really figure it out like you the world is weird we live in crazy weird times and you know you've got your subconscious mind telling you something and your conscious mind is telling you something and because you're trying to get across your 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 personal values and your work. That that's I think to do that really well is a really difficult thing. And I think it takes time. It's a real it's it's a much more time consuming process. Like commission work, you know, you get maybe a brief at the beginning of the month and you're shooting at the end of the month and it's done a couple of days later, like it's, it's finished, you know, once you've sent those deliverables and they've had the files and they're happy and you can, you know, you've got the money in the bank, job done, happy days. But personal work isn't like that because it's, it's constantly evolving and changing and as you change and, and as you evolve. And, and I think, I don't think commissioned work should 
interfere with your personal work and, and it shouldn't and that's stop. The balance, right? Yeah. And I think it, like there's no, you know, sometimes when I'm busy on commission stuff, I don't shoot personal work. You know, it's just I'm too busy. I've got, I'm thinking about this project. I need to focus all my time and energy on this particular project. I don't have any time for any extra noise and it, they can be quite demanding. But as soon as it's done, I will be out shooting my personal stuff again. You know, and I think you, I think that you, that's, that's the key to being a, a successful professional photographer, maybe is that, you know, sometimes you get, you, you'll be in one of these down, down period times where you haven't got any work. And then that's where you've got to be fo- focusing yourself and forcing yourself to go and shoot, to shoot some test projects, to walk the street, if you like street photography, to, to shoot portraits, if you like. You've got to be doing that work when you've got off time and when you haven't got the commissioned work and and that that stuff that stuff that you're doing then hopefully will lead to you getting more commissions in the work that you want to do i think they self they self-fulfilling you know they, they feed each other you know right and it, that's that's the that's the skill is getting one to feed the other your personal work to feed your commission work um but it's not easy i i don't think i've got all the i don't think i've got any of the answers i just think that you, you you're not you're, you're you're doing it because you have to, not financially, but you just have to get that out of you. That that's yeah, I, for sure. I feel I feel I, I I notice my mood changing if I've not you know shot for a couple of days. For sure, I I, I this this thing whether I you know sometimes I will go and walk for a couple of hours and I only take two or three photos. But it's the practice of walking and going out with your camera and looking and observing and slowing down and taking a step back from whatever stresses and pains you've got. And I think that's, that's, I love that about photography. I love that. For me, that's his greatest gift to me ever. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's always been this idea of slowing down, you know, everything for me is incredibly fast, you know, um, conversation is fast. Even my own conversation is fast, you know, I'm trying to think <laughs> what I'm going to say before I say it and, and being able to just bring everything down to a much more considered speed. Um, I love that. I love that. I, I think that, that's what I I love. I love. I think that's the same for, for, for basically any creative medium that, that people are taking up as a profession as well. It's. I would say that if you're doing that, if you're choosing to do that, if you're an illustrator or whatever that creative medium is, you should be doing that because you're passionate about it, not because you you get the dollar signs in your eyes when you think about it. And the second you cross over that boundary, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm sure there are uh, photographers, we've been talking about photographers a lot today. I'm sure there are photographers that literally for them, it's only a job and they don't even think about the camera outside mm-hmm. of whenever they're, they're getting paid. But I feel like if you are seriously considering how to get a balance between your paid and your, your personal work, then I think that's it. I think it, it's the passion. And the second that goes away, then you've lost that equilibrium somewhere. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, like I always said to Romy, like if I didn't have the street, I wouldn't be able to do the commission work. Like I always felt that way because it was my outlet. It was my, you know, I was much better when I'd been shooting regularly and then I turn up for a commission job, do the work. And then go back to the personal work, and that, like you, it'll tell you, I, I've, I've done that since day one. That has been because I like, yes, the commission work can be quite stressful. So, you know, like some days I wouldn't be able to pick up a camera, maybe for two or three or even four days after a commission, because you'd be so like, I don't want to see a bloody camera ever again. Like, please take it away. 
but it, it didn't last that long. Like, you know, it, it was like, is this, it, is this to it, preview cats? Is this what this is? Yeah, yes. Don't talk about the cats. Like, let's never talk about the cats again. Uh, <laughs> change me, change me. <laughs> I think that's quite a profound note to end on, to be honest with you for, for that particular topic. You, yeah. if, if you're not passionate, then your balance is broken and you need to, you need to work out how to fix it. And that, that is the key, Dan, is that there are going to be maybe some prolonged periods in your photography career where things aren't going well and it, it, it's a bit slow and it's not so busy. And during that time, I think the successful photographers... I'm in one. <laughs> the, the, success, the successful ones are doing their, their test work. You know, like I said, it, it's it's that, that passion to produce even when you don't feel like it and it's like, oh, I can't be bothered. I think you just try and get out every day, you know, try, try. I think that's the goal, mm. goal and goal. You, you need to be interested enough in your medium that you're you're doing it consistently. Have you got any shout-outs this week, Paul? Uh, we, should we move on to shout-outs? That's a good question. I was gonna... I'll, I'll jump on my one first, and then while I'm vamping away, <laughs> you can have a think about yours. Okay, so okay. my shout-out this week is going to be Chris Riddell's uh, Five Years book. So Chris Riddell is uh, like an illustrator, and he's just put out a book Every single day, talking about consistency here, Paul, every single day this guy does a political sketch. Um, he posts it on Instagram and he's just released the first book. He's going to keep this up for five years. Five years, Paul. Can you imagine releasing wow. something you've done every day for five years? Wow. And as you flick through this book, it's literally, you know, 1st of January, 2nd of January. And you can see him summing up the news in like a really cool little satirical sketch yeah, it's just amazing. The energy that it would take to to do that every single day is is just unbelievable to me. So, so yeah, Chris Chris Riddell. It might be Chris Riddell. I'm really rubbish with names, but I like the way my, you say Riddell. It sounds like American football player. It, it's R I D D E double L. So okay, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's Riddell. But yeah, he he's my pick. How about nice. you, Paul? You've you've had a long time to consider this. You've been thinking about this all week. All week, Dan, all week. It's um and I, I bought this book, I think I had it around Christmas time, and it's um The Parameters of Our Cage by C. Fausto Cabrera and Alex Soth. And it's basically a little book where Alex has a uh sort of a pen pal relationship with a prisoner um in an American prison. And it's amazing, it's just the way that the prisoner guy, um, Fausto talks about photography. I, I just think it's a beautiful thing. It made me cry when I was reading it. Uh, I think it's really thoughtful and thought provoking. One of the most favorite things I've read this year, actually, it's really, really enjoyable. Is so it? the parameters of our cage by C. Fausto Cabrera and Alex. Does it follow the whole cycle of the guy being in jail? Does he get out eventually? Like I'm immediately wanting to ask questions. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't get out. He's still there. But Alex Soft goes to see his family. Man, it's amazing. It is actually. I want to read it again because I really enjoyed it. I I didn't put it down. Literally, it's not. It's not a big, tiny thing. It's got 121 pages. Thoroughly recommended. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommended. A really good pick. Well, wow. nice, Dan. I can't believe we're we're up at time already. That's another one in the bag. Yeah, I got chicken in the oven. Woohoo. Have you? Ooh, I can smell it. It's, it's permeating through my nose. What kind of chicken? My wife calls it chicken surprise. <laughs> and oh, it's basically, that it's basically chicken, th <laughs> chicken thighs cooked in white wine with garlic and lemon juice with a touch of salt. Oh, that's and all right. 
Yeah, it's all right. It's not I don't bad. know. Whenever I hear the word surprise with food, it never sounds appealing. <laughs> yeah, me too. I agree with you. There's no surprise in it. She's cooked it about a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're up at time. So thank you very much for tuning in for another week. Next week, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Uh, we probably need to have a chat about that. So it'll, that'll be a nice surprise as well. What, what's the week? What's the date next week? We could interview somebody next week, maybe. Uh, oh, we, yeah. Is this Dave? Are we getting Dave on next week? Is, is that the 11th? Or no, that's the week maybe, afterwards, isn't it? The week it? after. We could maybe switch Alfred in next week if you fancy, because he was keen. Oh, yeah. We, maybe, maybe we should do that. I'm going to leave all this in, and you guys will get a little bit of inside baseball. Who knows? Uh, who knows what who we're going to do next who week? Who knows? Could be excited. Take care of yourselves, everybody. We'll, we'll catch you soon. Be safe. You're nearly out of lockdown, people. You need.